Again, we're going to be starting in uh, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be starting with verse 1. And it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Hallelujah. The nativity story as recorded by Luke. I read this portion of scripture with my family every Christmas, and as many of you probably do as well. And let's face it, uh, Luke's account of the birth of Christ is probably preferred by most people because it gives us the most detail, right? Let's take Matthew for starters. His version's not bad, but a bit more abbreviated. Uh, Matthew's version kind of goes like this. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but conceived a child by the Holy Spirit before they were married. Joseph was trying to decide what to do when an angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and just tells him to relax. It's all part of God's plan. So Joseph marries her. She gives birth, and they name him Jesus. The end. Mark doesn't give us anything at all about the birth of Jesus. If you read the the beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark, he starts uh, with the account of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Uh, we don't hear about Jesus until he actually comes to John and gets baptized. Now, John, John takes a whole different route altogether, right? He's a, he takes a, a bit more theological uh, view on, on uh, the beginning of his Gospel. He, he starts by calling Jesus the Word and telling us about how Jesus was involved in creation. John's nativity story is extremely short. In John 1.14 it said, And the word became flesh. The end. So as you can see, if you really want to read a nativity story that, that paints a good picture of, for us of, of what happened um, at the birth of Christ, and it gives us a lot of detail, you've got to go with Luke. So as we continue with the sermon series, Jesus is... There is one detail in particular in the Gospel of Luke that I would like to focus in on today. In the birth announcement, the angel brought to the shepherds, the angel declares, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel came to the shepherds proclaiming the good news that the Savior of all mankind was born that day. 
I find that pretty exciting. The problem is, I don't know if the Jews ever really got it. Now, uh, we'll never know for certain, but there are several facts that we can observe by reading Scripture that tell us that they were probably not looking for the Savior that actually came that day. And I'm going to... I'm gonna. Um, recap a few things that Pastor Mark uh, mentioned in his sermon last week. In fact, when, when Pastor Mark was preaching, I, I said, oh no, he's preaching my sermon. What am I going to talk about? That just means that we're both in tune with the Holy Spirit. Amen? But there's this distinct pattern uh, in the history of the Jewish people, and it just it's a cycle that keeps getting repeated over and over again. The hearts of the Jews would turn away from God and, and turn towards sin and the worship of false gods. Um, God would send a prophet uh, to speak to the people. Uh, their messages would generally call out the sin of the people, call the nation to repentance, and warn of the consequences that would follow if they did not listen. The Jews mostly rejected the prophets and their messages, as we all know. The prophets suffered and oftentimes died at the hands of the Jews. God, in order to turn the people's hearts back to him, would allow another nation or nations to come and conquer them, right? To, they destroyed their cities, they, they took their valuables, and sometimes they took them captive or killed them. And at this point, this is the point where the Jews would finally wake up and get it, and they would normally humble themselves and repent and turn back to God. And at that time, God would send to them a deliverer, a leader, who would deliver them from their enemies, a savior. But now fast forward to where we are today in our account of the, the nativity story, the birth of Christ. At this point, Israel had been conquered and was a territory within the Roman Empire. Many Jews in, in Jesus' day were looking for the same type of leader God sent to their forefathers before them, a deliverer, a savior who would rise up and help them Overthrow the Romans, take back their land, return Israel to being a secure, prosperous world power like it was before. The tragedy of this whole situation was that Israel failed to learn from the past, right? They failed to learn that as a people they continued to repeat this same cycle in history. They failed to learn that God continued to use their enemies to humble them and bring them to repentance. And they failed to learn that this only happened when their hearts drifted away from their covenant relationship with him. You'd think at this point that God had every right to throw up his hands and declare he's had enough with Jews and he's had enough with mankind in general. But he doesn't. In fact, at this point, he doesn't send another king. He doesn't send another priest. He doesn't send another prophet to help his people defeat their Roman enemy. He sends a different kind of savior. He sends his son to defeat the biggest threat to mankind once and for all. The word uh, savior... Um, as it's being used in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, means one who rescues, a deliverer, a preserver. And it was the coming of this Savior 
that was the subject of the good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And as I, I read that and, and what the angel proclaimed, the good news, the great joy for all the people, those words can only begin to communicate to them the significance of the victory that this Savior would win for all mankind. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself expanded upon his mission. What did the Savior come to do? Just in case we didn't get it, just in case the Jews didn't get it, he continued to expand upon it, reinforce what he came to do. And he says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A familiar portion of Scripture to us. We know as we read this, and as we're familiar with Scripture in general, that the, the word lost here doesn't just mean misplaced. It doesn't mean that God misplaced us, that we were misplaced somehow. It means something a lot deeper, a lot more significant. In fact, in the Greek, if you look at the Greek word, it, it means it can mean to experience destruction, to perish or to die. Now, this use of the word is its not unfamiliar to us, right? If, we, if a, a, a family member or a loved one passes away and we're, we're telling a friend or, or, or a neighbor about this, you might, you might find yourself saying, well, we lost aunt so-and-so today or we lost uncle so-and-so today. So this is a very familiar use of the word lost to us. When I was thinking about Jesus as Savior, and I was preparing for this sermon, I was, I was reading on the internet, which I don't do very often, but I was interested in what happened in Paris. And particularly the story of, of one woman. So apparently, there's a, a woman in Paris, a pregnant woman, who goes to this concert venue to see this heavy metal concert, where a large group of people are taken hostage by these terrorists, right? And, in fact, 89 of them were killed by these same terrorists. In an attempt to escape all this killing, she finds herself in all this chaos, the shooting. Um, she crawls out a third-story window and basically dangles herself on the outside of the building while holding on to the window ledge. So... She's apparently just hoping that they don't see her hands on that window ledge and they don't see her hanging out there while they're killing all these people on the inside. The problem is she was on a third story, the third story of that, that building, and they were saying that she was at least 20 or, 20 or so feet high. And eventually she found her strength was failing. And her grip was slipping. And she began to beg for somebody to come and help her. There were people running around out on the street, and she's begging them, and she's saying, please, please, I'm pregnant, please come and help me. Another man who, turns out, was also hiding in her area actually actually hears the woman crying, and, and he's there just trying to get away from the gunman as well. But he comes to the window, reaches out, grabs her, and pulls her back inside. 
and they're both able to hide, and they both survive. That man saved the woman and her unborn child from perishing that day. Her boyfriend would have lost the woman he loves and his child. And it's curious, but the media in, in many different ways has, has labeled this man a savior. They've used that specific term for him that he is her savior. Of course, such a simple illustration can never fully explain spiritual truths. Uh, had Jesus merely come to save people from physical death here in the present, he would have just delivered Israel from the Romans, right? Now, by human standards, we can all look at this and say, that is a lofty goal to prevent people from dying. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't preventing people from dying while he was here on earth. Yes, he did perform a few miracles and save some lives, but that's not what his agenda was, right? We know that that was not his agenda. So the only logical explanation is that if he's not here to save people from physically dying or being killed by the Romans, he must have come for something much more important and much more serious, right? So I'm going to go to Matthew's account of the nativity story uh, because he gives us an additional detail that Luke does not include. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20. It says, and he's talking about Joseph here, because Matthew's writing, and he's primarily concerned with what's happening with Joseph in the nativity story. He says, but while he thought on these things, talking about Joseph... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And here is the part in particular that I want to focus in on. He says, For he shall save his people from their sins. So this Savior didn't come to deliver the, the Jews from their, um, the, their Roman oppressors. He didn't come to keep them from physically dying. He came to save his people from their sins. If we look in Mark, the one thing that Mark does give us is the messenger that God even sent out before the Savior came. John the Baptist, his ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And what he does start doing is he starts calling attention to the bigger problem, the more serious issue that Jesus is coming to save them from, right? That was John's message in a nutshell. What does Mark 1.4 say? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So just in case the Jews didn't get it, God says, John, even before the Savior comes, even before Jesus comes, to, to start bringing this to the forefront of their minds that, hey, there's a bigger problem than the Romans out there, and it's your sin. And we need to deal with that. God wants to deal with that. So God is setting the Jews up. He's, he's trying to get their attention. Because the greatest problem 
for them and really for all mankind is really sin. I think there's a lot of things that could cause cause sin, but I, I guess I lump them into, into basically three main categories. One is hatred of God. There are people that plain old just hate God. They're wicked. They're rebellious. They don't like God. They don't like what he stands for. They don't like who he is. Other people who hate God hate him for maybe something that he did do or didn't do. I hate God because he he let my wife die. I hate God because we had to claim bankruptcy. I hate God because he didn't provide this or he didn't do that. So there are people out there that hate God. There's also a mistrust of God, right? Uh, again, this is, a, this is something that Pastor Mark alluded to last week. We see, we see the, the, the uh, prime example of that beginning in the Garden of Eden, right? God proclaims that they should not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, right? And what does is, what is Satan immediately do? He attacks God's word. He says, you can't trust God, right? Because he knows very well that if you eat of that fruit, you will become like him, right? Knowing of good and evil. So again, right there, Satan starts causing man to mistrust God, mistrust his word. Sometimes people just mistrust God's motives or God's intentions. Why does God allow things to happen? I don't get it. Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? I'm not sure that God's going to help me through this. I think God has abandoned me. I feel like God is nowhere around. I don't think God's listening to me. And there's a mistrust of God's intentions. There's a mistrust of God's motives. I don't get what he's doing, but he's not doing what I think he should be doing. Causes people to sin. I think the third main, main thing that causes people to sin is, is pride. Pride before God. Going back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve seemed to think that, that the prospect of being like God was pretty attractive, didn't they? And I think that there's a little bit of that in all of us, right? I think human nature is we don't want to humble ourselves before somebody else. We don't want to humble ourselves before God. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to rule our world. We don't want to leave it in the hands of somebody else. All these things cause us to sin. And the effect of sin is is a lot more devastating. Because sin really makes true relationship with God impossible, doesn't it? Sin makes true relationship with God impossible. Why? Well, because, first of all, sin destroys our intimacy with God. If I do something wrong, if I do something to uh, offend my wife, I'm not going to try and snuggle up next to her five minutes later because I know what I'll get. I'll get an elbow in the guts. Right? Sin destroys intimacy with God. And then what happens in us We react to that, right? We react to that situation. We 
in turn, put our defenses up. When we know we've wronged God, when we know we've sinned against God, we put our defenses up. We either we put our defenses up and get ready for a fight or retaliation or whatever is going to happen, whatever, whatever God chooses to do to react to what we've done. Or we take the other route, the route that Adam and Eve took. We hide. We start to shrink away from God and our relationship with God. We stop spending time with him. We stop praying. We stop coming to church. We stop spending time in his house. We shrink away from that relationship because we know we've done something to damage it. We don't always key in on this either, but did you know that the the Bible says that sin really makes us enemies with God? Sinners are enemies of God. God considers us enemies as sinners because we're opposing him, right? In sin, we are opposing or resisting God and his will for our lives, for his creation. We are going against God. And when you go against somebody, when you oppose somebody, you're their enemy, right? Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, NIV says God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And you see, in the same breath, Paul mentions enemies, us being enemies, and then us being reconciled, right? Because he's referring to reconcile uh, has to do with relationship and restoring a relationship, and that's what Jesus is doing. We have severed our relationship with God through sin. We made ourselves enemies to God. And Jesus, through his death, he comes and he reconciles us to God. He reconciles that relationship. And through him, we are saved, right? I'm sure we're all familiar with Scripture and what... Uh, it says sin, sin ultimately gets us. We're all familiar with uh, the passage in Romans 6.23 that says, for the wages of sin is death. Which simply means um, if you're sinning, you, you are earning yourself death. And not a physical death, but a spiritual and eternal death. Now if you remember back a little bit, a little ways in the message, uh, we said the word lost means to experience, experience destruction, to perish, or to die. Right? So sinners are lost. They are not dead in the physical sense, but a spiritual, eternal death awaits them at the end of the world. So there's the connection there. Lost people are dead people. And that's the result of their sin. So virtually, they're dead men and dead women walking. I kind of liken this to um, when we were when we were kids. I'm the oldest of nine, um, so a lot of brothers and sisters, and we used to get into a lot of trouble, right? Especially when there's when there's five brothers. We weren't exactly sure what the what the girls were up to, but the five brothers, we were getting into trouble. And I just remember 
uh, you know, when, when one of us broke something or when one of us did something wrong, we used to say, ooh, you are so dead. Right? How many other people said that to their brother or sister or whoever, right? You are so dead. Why? Death had not occurred yet, but it was only a matter of time, right? If only this impending death was as apparent to us as it was to those in the Paris attacks. I sometimes wish and wonder what it would be like if we really could get a vision, a glimpse of, of what this death means. What happens in this spiritual eternal death? What we do have is we have God's word, right? That tells us about it. We have our consciences. We have God's Holy Spirit telling us that death is coming. So we have things speaking to us, telling us about it. But what we don't have is the ability to see with our physical eyes what Jesus describes in Matthew 25 as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 30 or in verse 41 when he says it's a place of eternal fire. We can't really know what that's like. We can't experience it. We, don't, we can't see it. There's no tangible way to know what's coming. But I wish, I wish sometimes that there was. Because I wonder if some people would take this more seriously if they could see it. If they could see people going to this place. If they could see people all around them headed to this place, going to this place, experiencing the impending death that possibly some of us in here or people that we know, loved ones, are facing. There's so many people, so many people in the world that do their best to ignore God's word. We want to ignore God's word. We want to discredit God's word. We don't want to believe God's word. And even, even people in the church come up with clever ways to, to discount God's word. Well, the Bible contains the word of God, but it's not, the, the whole thing is not the word of God. The, some of the Bible is inspired, but not all of the Bible is inspired. God only meant that as a figure of speech. He didn't really mean that. We come up with clever ways to convince ourselves that what God is saying in his word just really isn't true. Some people do their best to ignore their conscience, right? Some people do their best to ignore his Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I, I kind of akin it to this, uh, la, 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 I'm not listening, I don't hear you. Bugging their ears the whole time. No, if I don't hear it, it's not true. I can't hear you. They convince themselves that they're not really lost. They convince themselves that hell really doesn't exist. They convince themselves that God would never allow us to go there. It's just not true. It's just not accurate. And I wouldn't want to bet my eternal life on that. While the Jews were, were preoccupied with the Romans... 
And while we ourselves in the present day are, are preoccupied with our own comfort, our, 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 our own security, and our own prosperity, God saw and God sees right now people who are lost. And even though these lost people have sinned, and even though these lost people have destroyed their relationships with him, even though these lost people have made themselves his enemies, God still loves them. Isn't that incredible? God still loves them. Sends his son. His son. I can't imagine sending my son. He sends his son to come and save them. These lost people. These people that rejected him. But these people that he still loves. He sends his son to come and save them. And, and, and there's no conventional way to save these people. But this is what he does. His son, our Savior, comes and lives a sinless life. The sinless life that we could not live. And a life without sin is a life of relationship with God. He lives the sinless life that, that, that we could not live. And then... He receives the wages of their sin, since no wage of, of death was due him. He receives their wages of sin, of death, on the cross. That's how he saves them. That's how he saves us. an incredible story, one that may not make sense to us in, in the here and now and with our, our human practical minds, but nothing that God does makes sense to our human practical minds because God's ways are above our ways. God's thoughts are above our thoughts. Amen? And there's a whole other spiritual realm. There's a whole other kingdom out there that is happening, that's going on, that's existing right now. Things are happening. Things are taking place. And the things that don't make sense in this world make perfect sense in that one. Amen? What an incredible thing that Jesus does. He comes and saves us, lives the sinless life, and then just takes our wages of sin in our place. So, as the angel did over 2,000 years ago, today I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all of you and all people, that on Christmas Day... We celebrate that in the city of David there has been born for you 
and you and me a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want to share one final, final thought. The thing that struck me the most about the story of, of the woman in Paris was that, if you think about it, a decision she made put her in the situation where she faced death by the terrorists. Now, it's true she didn't go there expecting that there would be terrorists there, but... It was a decision that she made, a choice that she made that put her in that position. And then, when she finds herself in that position, she doesn't initially call out for help. She really tries to handle the situation herself, right? She thinks, well, I'm in this position. I need to get out of it or I'm going to die, so let me fix this. I'll go to this window and lower myself out and hang there. Now, admittedly, when we're facing death, we're probably not the best decision makers, are we? And then, as she's hanging there from the window, she starts to run out of strength, right? Her grip starts to slip. And, and, and at this point, there is no way out. There's no, more, there's no more plan B. There's no more other choices. She cannot do anything else to save herself, right? She goes in, there's terrorists. She hangs on there, she's going to fall and possibly die. There's no way out. There's nowhere else to run. There's nothing else that she can do. And it's at this point that she starts calling out for help, right? right? She starts begging for help. Please help me. I am going to fall. I'm going to die. I'm pregnant. And it was at that point, that very point, when she calls out that the hand of a Savior reaches out and rescues her. A lot of parallels, right? No matter where we find ourselves in life, whether our decisions have brought us to a place where we're facing death, whether or not we've gotten to that point and we've not turned to God yet, but we've tried to take matters into our own hands and do things to fix things ourselves and have made even worse decisions and gotten ourselves to an even worse place, our Savior, Christ the Lord, ready to reach out and rescue us when we call upon him. It's absolutely incredible. Amen? I know this quote may be a bit overplayed, but I still like it. Uh, it's, it's from an unknown source. It says, If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. 
But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord God, and, and we've hopefully come to a new appreciation of what it means when the angel announces that in this day, on the city of David, there's a Savior born unto us. Lord, we hear this story each and every year, and, and we hear the angel's proclamation each and every year. We hear the word Savior each and every year. But somehow, somehow I feel most of the time it just falls short of, of bringing forth the emotion that it truly should. The significance that it truly should in our own lives of, of what it means that a Savior was born unto us. We celebrate that on Christmas Day. Lord, I pray this year, I pray this year as we go through this sermon series that that we don't just sit there and listen and think this is another clever, entertaining series, but that we really start taking these truths to heart of who Jesus was and who Jesus is to us today. Help us to realize that we needed a Savior and that we still need a Savior. God, I realize in my own life that that there's times where I may still need, that I may still find myself in a place where I'm facing eternal death. Maybe I've made a few wrong choices. Maybe I've gone down a wrong path. Maybe I've tried to fix things myself only to have them go from bad to worse. Maybe in my heart I feel the Holy Spirit tugging at me. Maybe I feel my conscience calling to me saying, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. The way you're going can only lead to destruction and death. Maybe before I've tried to ignore it. I've tried to explain it away. I've tried not listening. And maybe there's sometimes I find myself in a place where I can't ignore it anymore. And at that point, God, I am so, so glad. I, I am so happy there, uh, that there is a Savior that I can call on in my moment of need, in my moment of desperation. And He's still waiting there to reach out and take me by the hands and rescue me. God a moment to do what he wants to do here. And so we're still, while we all still have our, our eyes closed and our heads bowed in, in, a, in a prayerful attitude, I just want to put this out there to you. Maybe there's people out there right now that find themselves in this position. That maybe they find, even if you've served God for 10, 20, 30 years, there's still the possibility that you have made some decisions 
that have brought you to this point, this point of certain death. You've fallen into sin. You've broken your relationship with God. You feel it. Your conscience is eating away at you. The Holy Spirit is crying out to you. Or maybe you've never really had that relationship with God at all, that that true relationship, that intimate relationship, that you've always kept Him at arm's length because you wanted to do what you wanted to do. Maybe you just have never quite understood what awaits for those who continue in sin. And that it's real. At this moment, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, whatever situation you're in, if you're feeling that the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need a Savior right now. You need somebody to reach out grab you by the hand and rescue you from where you're finding yourself at this moment spiritually in your life. I just want you to take a moment and just raise your hand as if you're reaching up for his hand extended out to you. Just raise your hand. Nobody's going to look. Nobody's going to call you out. Nobody's going to point you out. But I want God to have that moment with you. Amen. Thank you. Put your hand down. Anybody else? God is speaking to your heart telling you You need a Savior right now. This is your opportunity. This is your chance. I believe that God is working on people's hearts right now. I don't have, you know, to be honest with you, I don't have to see hands. Let's join together in prayer right now with those who have raised their hands and those who may still be wrestling in their hearts with their need to be saved. And just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the good news of great joy for all the people Savior was born unto us. Because God, we've made a mess of things. We've made bad choices. We've sinned against you. We've broken our relationship with you. We find ourselves at a point of desperation. is telling us we need a Savior. And Lord, right now we reach out. We call out. And we ask you to save us. To set us free from our sin. To reconcile us with you once again. So that we can enjoy eternity with you. Thank you, Jesus.